welcome to the March edition of Metro Cinema Presents Close Up, the podcast in which we discuss some of the films and events we've got coming to Metro in the month ahead, as well as cinema in a broader context. We are now also a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And before we get started, I've got a brief message about barbecue. Hi, y'all. This is Ryan from the Eat More Barbecue Podcast. I'm just a guy that loves slow-smoked southern barbecue. I love eating it, I love cooking it, and I really love talking about it. I want to help grow the barbecue culture here in Alberta, and this podcast is a great way for me to share the stories of the people involved in the barbecue community, like restaurant operators and competitive barbecue cooks. Along the way, I also visit with other folks like farmers, distilleries, breweries, and anything of interest to barbecue people. A new episode comes out every Wednesday wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep on smoking, folks. Who doesn't love barbecue? I don't know. I can't think of a single person. Catch Eat More Barbecue and loads of other great podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. <laughs> projectionist at Metro. That's right. Uh, my name is Owen. I'm the Projectionist at Metro Cinema. One of the Projectionists at Metro Cinema. I also co-host the monthly movie trivia night at the Tavern on White. And I have a show on CGSR called The British North American Activating 67. It's on Mondays, 3 to 5. You just listen to it. It's awesome. William. Hi, I'm Will. I, uh, I scoop popcorn at the Metro, and I'm a film and philosophy student at the U of A. I'm Nick, and I also work at Metro. What else do you do, Nick? Uh, I'm in school. What are you studying? I'm studying alternative energy technology at the That's Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. Hey, I'm Heather. I am the president of the Metro board. Or the chair. I, yeah, the chair. That's what they say in most cities. Or <laughs> Apparently, for some reason in Alberta, we... We make it really fancy. Yeah. Uh, and I work at FAVA, which is the Film and Video Arts Society of Alberta. Uh, I'm Talisha. I'm a house manager and communication specialist at Metro. Excellent. Welcome. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so, for having us. That's all right. It's my pleasure. As usual, we're going to try and uh, muddle through the calendar from the first to the end of the month without an errant opinion derailing the whole thing along the way. But first of all, we've forgotten to do this uh, last few times. I'd like Heather to uh, talk about what is Metro? Yeah, that's right. We've I just forgotten. kind of mentioned to Owen that I don't think we've ever really talked about the fact that we're a non-profit cinema on the podcast. And um, I think a lot of people come to us for the movies and don't really know what we actually, how we work or what we are. So uh, when I say I'm on the president of the board, it's like a volunteer position. Um, our board is, is basically a bunch of volunteers and we have a lot of volunteers that um, help make Metro go, but of course we also have a great staff that do all the heavy lifting. Being a nonprofit means that we basically have to cover the cost of staff, cover the cost of screenings, and uh, obviously the facilities, but we're not here to just like basically make as much money as possible. Uh, we can kind of reinvest any kind of added funds that we have into making sure that we're screening things that are a little out of the ordinary and, you know, basically fulfilling our mandate, which mm -hmm. is being a community cinema and highlighting uh, works of art that are a little lesser known. So one of the ways that we do that is having a guest programmer call every year, and, you know, fulfilling the mandate of community cinema. It allows members of the greater Edmonton community to suggest programming series and then present them so obviously you've interviewed a whole bunch of those um, guest programmers over the years on the podcast and actually the call I think just went out this year so uh, if people are interested in programming something then they should put in a suggestion mm -hmm. we obviously can't program everything that people suggest uh, it kind of gets vetted through a I do believe process. there is a, a link on the website yeah. that you can follow to do that yeah 
So you should do that. Yeah. And if you'd like to support Metro in other ways, then you can donate to us because yeah. we are a registered charity. So. I started off when we started doing the podcast. I, I mentioned that a lot and yeah. just forgot. Yeah. So thanks for clearing up that. I, was, I had no idea what it was. Yeah. If you're someone with a lot of money. <laughs> and, and, you're, and you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> you definitely are. Somehow listening to this podcast. Very generous to the arts. And, and you yeah. love cinema. Then, he doesn't really. Yeah, exactly. Truly. Then you should uh, consider like lending a hand, to, you know, or volunteer your time for Metro too. That's always a good way to help out too. Anyway. Do the heavy lifting for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't exactly. Have to. <laughs> Quite frankly, I've had enough. Yeah, <laughs> uh, thank you, Heather, for that. Um, so we're going to start off with Bean Pole, which is uh, a new release for us, directed by Kantemir. Balagov it is from uh, initially from last year so to, we give you a brief description in post World War II Leningrad two women Aya and Masha intensely bonded after fighting side by side as anti-aircraft gunners attempt to readjust uh, to a haunted world as the film begins Aya long and slender towering over everyone hence the film's title works as a nurse in a shell-shocked hospital presiding over traumatized soldiers uh, and a shocking accident brings them closer uh, and also seals their fates Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, William, you said yes. that you'd seen this film. That's not true at all. Is that, have I, I just made I, that up? I almost Nick clearly, that. Okay. clearly remember you saying that you saw it at TIFF and it was your favorite film you saw at TIFF. And now it's revealed it never even was there. It was at TIFF, I believe. Okay. I didn't see it at TIFF. However, it was one of those films I wish I had seen at TIFF because it okay. looks kind of incredible. The color mm. grading looks like real weird. There's lots of like yeah. reds and greens and yellows and a kind of intriguingly sickly hue in somehow like the most beautiful way possible yeah so i wish i'd seen it at tiff i didn't that's a shame i'm sure it's great i'm hearing very good things about this uh this director um who's only made two films i think thus far uh, and he's very young as well. He's like 28, 29 years old. But yeah, the film is also uh, a depiction of life after war and how a society attempts to rebuild itself amid the chaos and rubble after its identity has been subjected to the uh, ravages of war and uh, manifested not in uh, just the broken architecture and structure of the physical city itself but also the collective psyche of its inhabitants in terms of national identity who are we in a crisis yeah so this uh, the film it won in certain regard at, uh, mm-hmm. at the Cannes Film Festival best director in the uncertain regard category yeah okay I think uh, it looks like a movie that's not necessarily fun to watch like it looks a little bit Fair. unpleasant but um, the best movies always are a little bit unpleasant. Yeah, exactly. Like I think sometimes it's you feel Im- initially resistant to dive in because you have to be emotionally prepared for it. I think. Yeah. I'm curious, what was your favorite movie? I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably Pedro Costa's Vitalina oh, Varela. Oh yes, I yeah. want okay. to get that so bad. It's oh, sorry, what was that? Vitalina Varela. Yeah. Okay. Pedro Costa, this like Portuguese director who's been making films about. Fontaine, this like shanty town residence in Portugal for like the last 20 years. He's very interesting. Okay. Yeah, very good. Oh, we should try and get we're gonna, we We're going to try to get it. Are we actually? It. Well, I don't know. I put it in okay. the spreadsheet. Can we now. just say, please get it because it's real f- good. Just put it in the curatorial. <laughs> yeah. We'll yeah. Uh, your maybe. mini curatorials. Yeah. Okay. Either way, Beanpole opens are on uh, February 28th and there's a few more screenings after that. It's at 6.45 and as I said, that's a new release. Um, joining me now is local mixed media artist Rin Kleimenhager, who also works at Metro as a programming assistant and front of house manager, and has now curated her own series of films under the enticing title Cardboard Carnage. I say 
uh, curated. It's more of an event. It's an event night, mm-hmm. isn't it? Uh, so welcome, Rin. Hello. Uh, so for a, a series title as unusual as Cardboard Carnage is actually incredibly self-explanatory and uh, makes total thematic sense, although you might not immediately recognise the films you've chosen. Uh, tell me what it is that drew you to curate a series that's uh, as oddly specific as this. Uh, well, in all honesty, it was... Um it was seeing a post from Kevin, who runs the only video rental store in town, uh, The Lobby. Uh, he'd posted something about this film called Dave Made a Maze, which artist building a cardboard box fort in his living room honestly seemed pretty appealing to me. So I uh, had to wait about two, three weeks before I was able to get a hold of the film. And upon watching it, it just hit all the right notes for me in terms of um, creativity. I'd never seen a movie that used something as simple as cardboard to such a uh, incredible extent yeah so I ended up maybe getting just a tiny bit obsessed about it and uh, remembered that there was another movie that I'd watched uh, a long time ago called uh, Murder Party that tied into this sort of theme of cardboard and crazy artists and it was kind of born born out of that because I like using uh, unusual mediums in my art if I can help it and cardboard is cheap <laughs> So yes, Dave Made a Maze, uh, directed by Bill Waterson from 2017. Uh, This is the story of Dave, a frustrated artist who has yet to accomplish anything significant in his career. He builds a fort out of cardboard boxes in his living room, as you said, only to wind up trapped by the fantastical pitfalls and critters of his own creation. Uh, Ignoring his warnings, Dave's girlfriend, Annie, leads a band of oddball explorers on a rescue mission. Upon entry, they find themselves in an ever-changing supernatural world threatened by booby traps and pursued by a bloodthirsty minotaur. I watched this today for the first time. There's almost no setup to the film at all. Mm-hmm. You're completely thrown into the uh, the situation that I've just described uh, with complete conviction in its own silliness. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's quite bewildering. But it's a, it, as you say, it's a highly inventive and resourceful film, which apparently utilised about 30,000 square feet of scrap cardboard uh, to construct the sets. And I was reading mm-hmm. today that they initially had uh, agreed with American Apparel the, to use their scrap cardboard and then they decided not to let them but mm-hmm. there was a building next door that was giving it away so they used all that cardboard mm-hmm. and then returned it all afterwards so <laughs> it was uh, a like, really really resourceful film and I understand you've been collecting your own cardboard I have I've been collecting a good chunk of the cardboard from uh, from the theatre because well we have lots of cardboard boxes in, in the theatre so it uh it works quite nicely in taking out recycling for the theater, and it works out quite nicely for me because I have access to free cardboard. I'm collecting all this cardboard because I figured, why just have the two films played when I can sort of show what you can do with cardboard? It's still a little, a little in the planning stages, but ideally what I'd like to do is build, if I have the time, I would like to build um, like a smaller scale replica of the front of the theater and of the um, auditorium of the theater. Awesome. Knowing how time tends to disappear, I'll probably just pick one. And if I have to pick one, I'm probably going to pick the the auditorium because, well, the screen is uh, the screen ties in quite nicely to the fact that I have a friend. She does uh, projection mapping, so it's essentially the short version is she she paints with light. Like yeah. you usually see it at like music events and that sort of thing. But um, what I'm hoping to do is get her to project whatever she really feels like onto the screen of the uh, small-scale auditorium that I'm hoping to build. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping to do that in the lobby because, well, the lobby of the of the theater is probably the best place to set up a ridiculous sort of cardboard invention. Uh, and the other one here, Murder Party, 
So this is directed by Jeremy Sonier, I think I'm saying that right. Uh, and this is from 2007. Uh, arguably more of a mess mm-hmm. than Dave made a maze. Certainly more carnage. Mm-hmm. But this was the debut feature from Sonier, who would go on to make uh, Blue Ruin and Green Room, uh, in which uh, Jean-Luc Picard plays a neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. And he also directed a couple of episodes of the last season of True Detective uh, oh. as well, which, although not capturing quite the uh, the same awesome scope and mood as the first season was a distinct improvement on uh, whatever the hell season two was. <laughs> but yes, it was made by Sonier and his collective known as the Lab of Madness. And um, I understand they couldn't find funding for it, so they just all uh, perform multiple roles, you know, the cast and crew, mm-hmm. either acting or, or, you know, key grips, all those sorts of things, and they all paid for, them, for themselves, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched them in, I don't know which order you're showing them in, but... Uh, Dave Made a Maze first and uh, Murder Party second. And that is exactly the order I watched them in Mm -hmm. today. There is a definite sort of marked difference in production values, even though Dave Made a Maze is a film that is made mostly of cardboard. Mm -hmm. I think Murder Party feels more ambitious in a way, but since it was the first film from a group of people, it feels almost more primitive in a strange Mm -hmm. kind of way. The the nice thing about both of them is they definitely both strike me as uh, passion projects in in like one form or another. Yeah. If if I may, just on a side note with um, Dave Made a Maze... In my digging around just to do research on this film, there used to be an artist collective. I can't quite remember where they were from. I want to say San Francisco, but there was an artist collective known as the Cardboard Institute of Technology. And they would do ridiculous, huge, large-scale installations in um, entirely in cardboard. Mm. And a couple of the people from Dave Made a Maze, they contacted a couple of the members of the Cardboard Institute and essentially had them help them with um, setup and stuff for a lot of the scenes. Yeah. And in digging around online, I ended up getting contact info for two members of the Cardboard Institute. So I'm hoping I can pick their brain a little bit on how they came up with ideas like this and used cardboard to that extent. Um, I know that I have a Skype interview with the director of the film. If I could get a Skype interview with one of the members of the Cardboard Institute, that would be fantastic. But having the interview with the um, director, I think will be fantastic. Murder Party uh, is also a fairly direct critique of uh, pretentious art students mm-hmm. that are obsessed with the uh, the value of shock art. Mm-hmm. So I kind of appreciate that. And in that sense, it kind of reminded me of an amazing uh, single series show from 2005 from England called Nathan Barley. I don't know if you ever saw that. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. had that. lots of familiar faces in it. So uh, Julian Barrett from Mighty mm-hmm. Boosh uh, was, uh, was the main character. Dan and um, has Benedict Cumberbatch and all sorts of people in kind of mm-hmm. very early roles. Um, I suppose Julian Barrett at the time had already done uh, a lot of the boosh, but there's a real nice kind of satirical edge to it, mm-hmm. uh, picking apart these sort of pretentious idiots who uh, ultimately make their own demise. Uh, and they'll do absolutely anything for the promise of money. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what's the date? When are we, when are we doing this? Uh, it's going to be Wednesday, March 25th. Uh, Dave Made a Maze will be playing first at uh, 7, and I believe that Murder Party will be playing at 9.15. That one... Could be 9.30, but as far as I know, it's uh, 7 p.m. and 9.15. And we're hoping very much to have a, uh, a cardboard structure uh, in the lobby mm-hmm. to really immer- help immerse yourself in the world of, of cardboard carnage. And hopefully, you know, maybe give people the opportunity to realize that you too can just collect cardboard and make whatever you want out of it as long as you have cardboard and hot glue. Found art. Mm-hmm. I love it. Awesome, Bryn. Thank you for talking to me. Yeah, anytime. Anytime.
This episode of Close Up is brought to you by Skirt to Fire, Edmonton's only multidisciplinary arts festival featuring and elevating the work of women. This year's festival is bigger than ever before with venues in Old Strathcona, downtown Edmonton and Alberta Avenue. Among the highlights are The Blue Hour, a timely, funny, complicated and ultimately heartbreaking play set in a small Alberta town circa 1947. That's at the Westby Theatre in the Arts Barns in Old Strathcona. There's also music, dance, drumming and performance art all along Alberta Avenue and much, much more. Skirt to Fire takes place from February 27th to March 8th and festival passes are on sale now for just $38. That will get you into the Blue Hour, one evening performance at the station on Jasper and as many by donations events as you'd like. You can also buy tickets directly for the Blue Hour and if you use the offer code PANEL5 you can get $5 off the regular price. Get your tickets today at skirttofire.com. Now in March, there's also uh, it is also International Women's Day on March the eighth, and as such, uh, last year we had a, a season of uh, a series of films called The Female Gaze, which was curated uh, at least in part by Geraldine Carr. I spoke to her last year. Now we've got uh, a, a few new releases, and I think it is again co-curated by her. That's right. right yeah. Yep. So uh, one of the the f- well, we've got so we're showing a, a bunch of films. That, like I said, a lot of them are new. We've got Cunningham. Uh, which is about uh, Merce Cunningham, who's a, a, a famous dancer from mm-hmm. New York. Oh, yeah, uh, choreographer, sorry. Yeah. But started uh, started life as a sort of as a struggling dancer. Uh, we've got a few other ones. Uh, so there's Murmur. Uh, is directed by uh, a lady called Heather Young. Um, looks like it was, again, initially released last year. It's her directorial debut, and it is a docu-film starring a cast of largely non-professional actors. Uh, it centers on Donna Shan, a lonely alcoholic woman who is ordered to perform community service in an animal shelter after being arrested for drunk driving uh, when she adopts an older dog from the shelter to save him from being put down. She finds new meaning and purpose in her life but becomes obsessed with saving animals to the detriment of her own well-being. So it's sort of that a... That sounds so sad. It oh does. It does <laughs> but so far, the... It's kind of a hard watch if you... Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, I, I've read today that it has been uh, well-received at TIFF and the Slam Dance Film Festival. It's Canadian. Yeah, it yes. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, there's a lot of Canadian films, I think, in March because we've got the French Film Fest too, so there's a bunch of... Okay, yeah, excellent. Yeah, there's also Antigone, which is kind of both um, falling under the category of the female gaze, as it's got mm-hmm. a female director, and um, French, French Film, film Fest. Fest. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then uh, Cunningham, as I said, is a documentary about the artistic evolution of Merce Cunningham from his early years as a struggling dancer in post-war New York to his emergence as one of the world's most visionary choreographers. And he's collaborated with an amazing array of artists, including John Cage, David Tudor, Brian Eno, Radiohead, Andy Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein, Jasper Johns, and that's just, there's a list, it goes on. He's an incredibly influential person that I hadn't heard of because I don't know much about dance. Mm-hmm. Talisha, you know, have you heard about this chap? No? All right, you like dance, don't you? I do like dance. You also like dance films, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> dance films are great. Like yeah. Step Up to uh, the Streets. I would say this is probably more in keeping with something like Pina. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel Less like the like last dance home. movie I watched was, um, oh, now I'm not going to be able to remember. It's a documentary. Breaking 2, was Electric Boogaloo. Oh, I've seen that one. <laughs> That's a great one. Wild Style. Yeah. Does that count? I've seen that. So the other, the other one is part of our uh, real family cinema and also part of the film, I guess, is The Secret Garden. And we're going to show the uh, Agnesia Holland 
version from 1993. There's a million versions of this film. Who's seen the 1993 version? I have not. I have. Yeah? I saw it when I was a kid, yeah. Mm -hmm. is, is it a conjure of fond memories for you? You know, I was a huge fan of the book. Like, I think I read the okay. book three times when I was a kid. So the movie was, you know, uh, it's serviceable as someone who wanted to see the the book on screen. Mm -hmm. I never read the book, but mm. I remember liking the movie when yeah. I was a kid. I don't know if it holds up as an adult, but like, it's not meant for me, so. I have absolutely no clue what it is. A Secret Garden. Yeah. Heather, what? enlighten us. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a novel by Frances Hugs and Burnett, who also wrote the A Little Princess, which Alfonso Cuaron adapted mm -hmm. to film, which is a great family movie, I've I would say. I've also seen that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because both movies are obviously drawing from the author's own experience as like a woman. She, as a child, she, I think her parents were kind of part of the British colonial uh, presence in India. So she spent her early years in India. So both the main characters of both those stories, both The Little Princess and Secret Garden, are children who are little white girls who grew up around Indian culture, and then they end up being transported back into uh, England. Yes. Uh, so in the case of The Secret Garden, her it actually starts out very brutally with her mother who her mother who is like a socialite who has no interest in her at all and basically just leaves her with indian caregivers all the time dies uh, i is think it like an earthquake or something yeah there's like a fire or i can't remember yeah she's <laughs> living in the moors in this big estate and her uncle is not a child person so again it's basically like she's completely neglected by her supposed caregivers and uh She's kind of feral to them. Yeah, like she's not at all civilized. Like no a, a proper. English and she's kind of she's rude. Be. It's it's uh, it doesn't <laughs> translate to narrative storytelling <laughs> like this. You really have to just experience oh, it. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a beautiful story, and uh, I would bring my child to it, except that I would like her to read the book first. So. Fair. So if your child has already read the book or you have no interest in reading the book or if you're not a child and you're just <laughs> intrigued by everything we've just said. Uh, Basically, man, just please, my, please come. My English <laughs> class right now is we've, we've been talking about like book to film adaptations yeah. and it's like whether or not it's like are film adaptations as good as the book or better than the book or do they just really hold two distinct yeah. positions mm. each, each worth merit and it's like we're pretty divided. Yeah, No one thinks that the film is ever better than the book, but mm. no one also thinks that they're entirely worth Like, everyone's just kind of in the middle of it. Like, sometimes mm. they're as good, sometimes there's one that's maybe better, but, like, not always. I mean, I would say that, I was just talking to someone about this, how uh, Stanley Kubrick is a good example of this. Like, he, the movies that he made that were actually his own original ideas are pretty forgettable, but he mm. somehow, he could always take something that had already been written and then completely transform it yeah. into something that um, was nothing like the source material and entirely cinematic. Yeah. And, does you know, it doesn't do a disservice to the source material either. Like, you can enjoy both because they're so different from each other. It's I, almost, I feel like you have to ask the author. Stephen King, not a fan of The sure. Shining. Stephen King, yes, he made his own version of The Shining, yeah. uh, which yeah. he directed, I think, directed? Or yeah, yeah, he did, he, like, he did three years it, after. And it was 
two or three years old. Woofle, I think. I don't mm. know that anyone who's ever seen it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, very, that should be a Metro yeah, double feature. Yeah, yeah. We used to have a poster for it in my media. He's too close to it. Okay, Secret Garden, fantastic. Another one that's part of uh, our female gaze series here is Illusions of Control, directed by Shannon Walsh from last year. I'm going to read this one straight off their website. A riveting meditation on resilience in the face of disaster. Illusions of Control unfolds in landscapes irrevocably shaped by human attempts to dominate them. Five women confront unbearable crises. Sylvia searches for her missing daughter in the deserts of northern Mexico. Yang attempts to hold back the expanding desert in China. Kaori mobilizes mothers as citizen scientists to monitor radiation in Fukushima, Japan. Uh, Stacy builds on indigenous knowledge to confront toxic legacies in Yellowknife. And Lauren stands at the crossroads of a serious health diagnosis in Chicago. Each story reveals surprising ways to live on and reimagine life in the ruins. It sounds almost thematically linked in some ways to something like Beanpole. Kind of restructuring your life amid yeah, chaos and confusion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that one sounds pretty interesting as well. And then uh, I think rounding out that series, although there are kind of a few more dotted uh, throughout the month, is uh, Hashtag Female Pleasure, which is from 2018, uh, a documentary, an exploration, uh, is an exploration of female sexuality in the 21st century uh, around the world. And then Little Women, Yes. Which we're getting. And I know that you two guys have seen this one. Have you got seen the new one? So you've seen the new one. We yeah. are the little women. We and you like the little women? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Shotgun Gemma. So Greta Gerwig. And she was uh, snubbed uh, this year at yes. the Oscars. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what did you make of it? Yeah, go on. I think it's just like lo- it's lovely. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like heartwarming. It's like you go to it, you have a good time, yeah. shed a few tears, and then you, you live your life, you know? I think as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty accurate. I think Greta Gerwig does an amazing job at making it feel so present and so urgent in a way that for a movie that takes place at the turn of the 20th century is... Uh, yes, you're, you're right. Nice, okay. nice. I think it also... The, the performances really help. Um, Florence Pugh mm-hmm. and Shersha Ronan yeah. in particular are just like standouts. And of course, everyone's favorite heartthrob, Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet. Peach Boy. Yep. Uh, yeah but no it's 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 beautiful in in its presentation and its story and it's the characters feel lived in in a way that's really impressive okay so little women is another book that i really loved when i was young in fact i remember i was reading it when the jillian armstrong version came out in 1994 and uh i was like i can't see this movie until i finish the book but you know i read this interesting interview with Greta Gerwig where she talked about how even most fans of the book really hate the ending because the book ends with basically our the central character Joe who is this tomboy aspiring writer she kind of gives up her aspirations of writing and starts a school for boys or something and and marries this guy who doesn't seem like very interesting and uh I think that you know Greta Gerwig kind of says in this interview that the author was kind of forced to put this ending on and she almost wrote it out of spite like that this is oh they want a romantic ending so we're going to and so she she changes the structure of the story in her adaptation I don't want to say too much but if that yeah if if you also hate the ending still you should watch it yeah no I mean that's I, I that was uh, I think in very much Gerwig's intention in the way that she adapted it to the screen was to fix the problems of the book almost, which maybe maybe she wouldn't say it like that. But so with the book, like Louisa May Alcott really wanted to write what she considered like high important literature, mm-hmm. but was told by her publisher essentially that it wasn't going to sell. Mm-hmm. So she had to write Little Women as a 
like mass marketable novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so like some of the character things, like Joe wanting to be a writer, is kind of building on her own life in that way. And then yeah, the ending thing is basically it's like, well, you need to have like all good sellable novels like have to have this romance. Mm-hmm. Like she, you know, she's not as a writer like what kind of aspirations are those for women? Like it's about getting married and having these kids. So she had to write that rather than what she really wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really interesting, I suppose, at the time, like it was meant to to be this just like kind of middle brow, low brow type of novel for people to sell. And now it gets held up a lot as like this classic piece of literature. I I wonder if that is reflected kind of uh, overly in the number of adaptations. Because again, with uh, like Secret Garden, there have been so many adaptations uh, of it into film. Uh, over the years, Little Women is another one though that's just been seven sort of times. Seven times, it's quite a lot mm-hmm. to see how you know it sort of reflects uh, modern attitudes um, as time goes by. So basically, the, the the female gaze mostly starts on Friday the sixth. There is one uh, on the first, although I've forgotten what that one is. But go to Metro. Farewell. Do- farewell. Okay, mm-hmm. the farewell. Has anyone seen that? One? Yeah, the Lulu Wang one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh yeah, I saw that too. Oh, well, there you go. That's actually going to be on. The, <laughs> hey, actually, I we saw just we've we glossed over it. That's going to be on the first of March as a kind of warm-up film to the series. How was that? It's really good. Although I I must say that while I certainly recognize its female themes, culture and home and identity in terms of nationality is much more present. But it's really good. Um, Aquafina, who rapper turned actress, she's great in it. Um, and I apologize, I don't know her name, but the grandmother as well. It's it's a very quiet movie, I think, and I'm actually surprised that it's gotten so much hype and buzz because for a movie like this, I think normally would fly under the radar, and I'm not quite sure why it's hitting so hard. And I like it a lot, but it, it is very understated and soft in a lot of ways, and it doesn't... If you're looking for something kind of really meaty it's there but it's not on the surface and it doesn't kind of give you this this ending where there's really any conclusions or or decision you know there's no there's no clear theme there it's just life is complicated is kind of the real what the message i got so again that's that's gonna be on the first of march and the uh, the rest of them, uh, the films there are kind of like grouped together from the 6th uh, through to just metrocinema.org for more details, please. But The Female Gaze as a series overall, we haven't really sort of spoken about the significance of it. Will, I know you're studying something very similar to this currently. Yeah, I mean, I think the just as like a concept, The th- Female Gaze is sort of like a theoretical idea that developed in response to Laura Mulvey's essay on cinematic representation where she develops sort of the infamous male gaze in which female characters are often objectified by the camera and the image and the sort of male characters within the film and audience members are compelled to narcissistically identify with male characters and there's sort of various lovely Freudian misery that goes on but um yeah I think the female gaze is a response or an attempt to develop a mode of cinematic engagement or cinematic capturing that disrupts the patriarchal structures that are inherent to popular Hollywood cinema. So the idea, to reiterate and make sense of that, is that uh, these films are some way thematically linked to uh, to what you've just said. Yeah. That's basically <laughs> it. I think, like, you know, it, it has to be more than just a female director. Yes. Because if they're, exactly, what yeah. they're doing is telling a conventional Hollywood story, then they're just going to be replicating that 
dynamic anyway. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like some, there's like a possible misconstrue where it's like, oh, the female gaze is the objectification of men, but then that's just like a inversion of the same right. structure, which still harbors the same sort of problems. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Professor Robert Smith, as well as being a professor of history and classics at the University of Alberta. Robert has also taught a range of classes which focus on the debate concerning the existence of extraterrestrial life, and the subjects of astronomy, spaceflight, and the history of science and technology have long been interests of his outside of formal academic study. He's currently creating a series of films at Metro Cinema entitled Bring on the Extraterrestrials. And last time he was here, we spoke about Denis Villeneuve's 2016 film Arrival. Uh, while he was here, Robert also teased that what the next screening might be, and I'm pleased to say it has indeed come to fruition. So on Wednesday, March 4th, Bring on the Extraterrestrials will round out what will hopefully be the first of many explorations into the subject of extraterrestrial representations in cinema. With Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke's seminal collaborative 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Robert, welcome. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, no one ever says that. Um, given your interest in the history of space exploration, what is the significance of 2001 to you and how important do you feel it was in terms of uh, propagating ideas about space travel uh, that now seem almost commonplace? The space travel that it represents really, I think, springs off a lot of planning ideas that were in play really from the 1950s. The um, double-shell space station that we see in some of the most iconic uh, sections of 2001 really looks just like the sorts of space stations that people were conceiving of in the 1950s and that, for example, Werner von Braun, who was a key figure in the development of rocketry in terms of developing the V2 in Germany in World War II and then working for the United States developing various rockets. He conceived of those kinds of space stations. Um, in the 50s there were series in Collier's magazine where you could see those space stations, the idea of ferries moving around in space, um, transporting people from the Earth up to such space stations, the idea of bases on the moon. So what Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke were doing there, I think, was really pretty much presenting what was conceived of as a likely relatively near-term future that we would have bases on the moon before too much longer. We would certainly have an enormous space station that would likely be rotating so you could get artificial gravity on the station. That was not going to be long in coming. And and so it's, uh, it's I think, as conceived in the mid-60s, what the future of space flight would look like. Arthur C. Clarke wrote a story which was originally entitled I think Sentinel of Eternity later becomes Sentinel about uh, an alien artifact on the moon that gets discovered and I was going to say unearthed but it must get unmooned I guess and so it's um, found on the moon and when initially Stanley Kubrick wrote to Arthur C. Clarke and said he wanted to make the proverbial good science fiction film Clark was thinking of The Sentinel. He was also thinking about um, a novel he'd written called Childhood's End, where he has 
uh, creatures who come and in effect oversee the development of human beings until they finally reach a stage or at least some of them will reach a stage where they can merge with what is called the overmind and so they've reached a totally different stage of uh, human evolution through this intervention. You can see bits of that certainly in the film but you see a lot more I think in the novel and also you see a lot in the novel to do with concerns around the likely future destruction of humanity which is something that um, Stanley Kubrick worried about a lot Mm -hmm. and that was obviously a big theme in his previous film Dr. Strangelove 1964 and he thought it was practically inevitable that humans were going to destroy themselves maybe not in 10 years maybe not 50 but at some point in the future we would have technological means to destroy ourselves because we couldn't control the technology appropriately so in the novel we get a somewhat different ending which i think is growing out of the concern of kubrick and plus out of original conceptions of the film, which Stanley Kubrick um, basically throws away, I think, in the middle of 1966, where, for those of you who've seen the film, um, the kind of star child, I guess we could call it, near the end, will destroy humanity's uh, nuclear weapons. And so the, the novel really is capturing an earlier conception. I think, whereas the film, even though it's still the same title, really stands alone and is quite distinct from the novel which was published after the the film was released. What is fundamental, I think, to the film, and I think the film's success, is it moves away from being highly literal in that Originally, the conception was there would be a prologue with interviews with scientists about extraterrestrial life. There would be much more dialogue. And what Kubrick did in the middle of 1966 was he writes a letter to Arthur C. Clarke and he says, I think we need to get away from this silly simplicity. And so he strips a lot of the stuff that Clark had wanted in, and Clark is a little bit upset, but he says, okay, I trust you. And so we get a quite different movie from the one that would have been made if they just decide, okay, it's the end of 1965, much of the shooting's already done. If they just say, okay, we're gonna go with what we've got, it would have been a very different looking movie. And I think a lot of the mystery and the optimism in a way would have been lost if that had been the decision that had been made. And so there's clearly a grand cinematic vision that Kubrick has that Arthur C. Clarke, as a science fiction writer and as a novelist, really didn't quite share, I think. But it it was a sufficiently close working relationship that that Clarke says, in effect, I I trust you, okay, we'll we'll do it. I'm a bit upset, but let's let's go. He made the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, so we spoke briefly about the lasting impact of 2001 on the uh, the last interview we did. 
and how it foreshadowed not only uh, so much of how technology is integrated into our lives, uh, but also the very cinematographic techniques employed to sell this kind of fantastical but very believable future. Often with great works of art, um, I'll continually uh, find new ways to interpret, understand and absorb them. But are there things about the film that still inform you? The sense of the technology, I think, is very powerful because the humans are really playing second and third fiddle to the technology. We get astronauts, but our two astronauts could almost be wax figures for the, all the emotion they show. Mm -hmm. And the only emotion really um, that's strongly on view is from the computer, Hal, who's grappling with this enormous secret that he's holding. And it raises questions, is Hal conscious? What about artificial intelligence? What is the relationship between the humans on the ship? And how, how reliant we are on technology? And so I think part of the power of the technology in the film comes from the pacing that you get with Kubrick in that he's not racing at any point. We get these slow, mm. measured moves which add up to, I think, a lot more tension than if we'd have had a typical kind of race around. And so the technology and humans' relationship to technology, I think, is probably even more powerful now than it might have been in 1968 because people had generally conceived of a certain kind of future involving spaceflight. There were some elements that clearly they get right with the technology. People have what we reasonably call laptops and cell phones. Other things they obviously get wrong, like the, the, the moon base coming soon. But as, as a vision of how humans relate to technology, I think is one of the key things I take from 2001 and why it, it has endured, because it's raising these very big questions for us. In relation back to Arrival from last month, I think the, the monolith entities in Arrival are not dissimilar to the kind of iconic slabs in, in yes. 2001. They're kind of as uh, perplexingly ominous as they are catalysts for wonder, uh, much like David Smith or Ronald Bladen's minimalist sculptures of the early uh, to mid-1960s. If you don't know what those are, you just Google them. They're absolutely fantastic, uh, which evoke a similar contemplation of uh, space. And even now, technology and design follows the same kinds of clean, simplistic, kind of crossly minimal and brutalist form, even referring to things that we use like laptops and phones. It's, you know, we're looking at black, yeah. rectangular objects, things that are very clean, very unfussy. And I think that the first time we see the monolith in the Dawn of Man section, it's really striking that we have these straight edges, it's got corners, and all the previous footage, that there are no sharp edges, there are no sharp corners, we're in a landscape, there are rocks, there's a water hole, and, and so on. And so it's quite striking that here is, obviously, in this landscape, an alien thing. How much more powerful to have the monolith and the film structured around the appearance of the monolith or four appearances by the monolith than if we'd had some guys in rubber suits representing extraterrestrial life. It, it's otherworldly. Otherworldly. Just like the ships that arrive in arrival and hover, they are clearly very otherworldly and you get a real power from that otherworldliness. And the fact they don't land, I think, is really good. 
um, much better to be a bit off the ground because that is much more otherworldly than if they'd landed, for example. And so the, the monolith, I mean, in some readings of the film, some people have likened the monolith, in effect, to the film itself, in that there is this transformative experience for the apes and also the humans on the moon, when, when they are caught in the burst of the radio signal directed off to Jupiter. And we as viewers viewing the film are similarly transformed. And it's a p- more powerful transformation because we don't know exactly what's happening, which is where I think Kubrick's re-envisioning of the film in 66 is so important because it would have been a lot more literal, a lot simpler. And we can now read far more into it. There's a lot more potential meanings associated with the film. There's a lot more for us to, as filmgoers, to actually grapple with than if it had been the original film that had been made. Um, If you have not seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, then I strongly urge you to come and do so on the big screen. It is an absolute spectacle, much like Arrival, but you know it came first from over 50 years ago it's absolutely fantastic it's still a, yes. still a brilliant experience quite unlike anything else to be perfectly honest it is on march the 4th correct at 6 30 6 30 that's right and uh, there'll be a, a, a pre-film introduction from professor robert smith and one of the department of history and classics graduate students who's working on an ma on science fiction and history of science fiction so he will be good at that's uh, solomon excellent well, you don't want to miss that. So, yes, Professor Robert Smith, thank you so much for coming. Great pleasure. Thanks. The Edmonton Community Foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on arts, philanthropy, green spaces, and sports and recreation. Learn more at ecfoundation.org. Uh, in amongst all of uh, all of those wonderful films as well is going to be a returning father video kitchen, Heather. Yes. On the seventh, tell us about this. Woo. Yeah. So, like I mentioned, I work at Fava. Yes, I am do. the director of programming, so I help schedule classes and stuff like that. Video kitchen is our most popular class, and it's our intro to video production class. So. Uh, It's a 12-week class, and four hours a week, people come and learn all the different aspects of making a short film, and then outside of class time, they get to take a gear package for the weekend, so camera, lighting, sound equipment, grip gear, all that stuff, and they make a short three to five minute film, sometimes they're longer, and then they get to edit them at Fab as well, they get editing time. And uh, so it's still, it's definitely a crash course in filmmaking, and it's a very condensed time frame to make a short film, but you get a lot of interesting things that come out of it. And uh, it's, I think it's a really cool opportunity for people, you know, like we are living in a time when, you know, anyone can make a movie with their phone, anyone can like self-distribute on the internet, but uh, there's still something really cool about actually like getting some serious gear and getting screened in the Metro Cinema. Like 
as an independent filmmaker, that's a huge opportunity, I think, to see your film on the big screen. I Yeah, I would say come check it out. It's it's oddly inspiring. <laughs> you know, when you see... because Werner Herzog would be proud. Yeah, well, and people yes. have, like, they people literally have no budget when they're making these films, and they have a very small crew. So, I mean, you know, you have to temper your expectations to that. But, you know, I was thinking about it today, and it's not a film school, but I've seen many people now having worked at Fava for six years go from video kitchen to our intermediate course main course and then you know some of them are like one person is working at the NFB now as a producer okay. and you know that that was their film education and you know other people uh, you know one person recently told me they were screened at a festival you know that and they just kind of went through this whole process like a year or two ago so you know it is uh not everyone takes this class and decides they're going to be a career filmmaker you know a lot of people taking realize it's not for them but it's kind of a, it's there are there's emerging talent in the class every single year so now we have we've been doing, i don't know how many years we do now uh a few at least oh my god all the, well certainly all the time that i've been in projection yeah there, but it is yeah but yes the seventh at three thirty. and it's admission by donation okay there you go. yeah excellent and the directors or the filmmakers all get up on stage and do a Q&A after. Which is nerve-wracking. Yes. It's, it's tons of fun. Not everyone's used to talking about what they've made or having to justify it. Well, they got to learn. <laughs> That's part learn. of the learning process. And I agree. That's, a, you know, uh, baptism by fire. So another thing we have, uh, which is rather exciting, is uh, the Abbas Kiristavi Coca trilogy. I know that Heather is excited about this. So while the trilogy is what it is among his most acclaimed works, he's probably still best known for 1990s Close Up and A Taste of Cherry. That's probably where he sort of achieved a global celebrity of some respect. The Taste of Cherry won the Palm Door that year as well in 97. So what we're screening is referred to as the Coca trilogy, which consists of Where Is the Friend's Home uh, from 87 and Life Goes On from 1992 and Through the Olive Trees from 94. uh, Although So the Coca trilogy is not a self-designated title by the director himself, uh, who considered the latter two films, along with Taste of Cherry, a more fitting trilogy as they're linked by the theme of life's preciousness. Uh, The name Coca trilogy refers to the geographic location where the films take place, which is the village of Coca in northern Iran, next to the Caspian Sea. Yeah. So I've only seen the first one, Mm -hmm. uh, but it really left a mark on me. It was well over a decade ago that I saw it and it's a story of a young boy who his friend at school forgets his homework or he accidentally takes home his homework and the boy has gotten in trouble at school for not having his homework done already a couple times and the teacher's like if you don't have your homework done tomorrow there's gonna be trouble and so he has to go looking for he doesn't know where his friend lives and he I think it's like in the next town so he has to go to this town and basically just spends the movie interacting with people in the community trying to find this boy's home. But what makes the, the trilogy really interesting, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the other ones, is that it's this like meta-narrative where the second film... So in this region where the first film was made, there was this uh, huge earthquake that killed 50,000 people. And so this film is a fiction where the, quote, director of the first film but who is not Abbas Kiristami, but rather an actor, goes with his son to this community that has been completely destroyed by this earthquake and tries to find the actors from the first film to see if they've survived this, this thing. And then the third film is about 
the making of the second film and one of the actors who is has this unrequited love for one of the other actors in the film. So each time it kind of takes a step beyond. And if you've seen The Taste of Cherry, there's a bit of fourth wall breaking in that <coughs> film at the very end as well. But I think what's interesting about Kiristami is that there, while he's interested in kind of drawing attention to the cinematic medium and doing that kind of fourth wall breaking, it doesn't come from a place of cynicism about the art form. Like, you know, when you look at someone like Godard in the 60s who has his characters kind of artificially talking at the audience, there's something, there's a distance to it and an artifice to the way people are acting. Whereas in uh, Kiristami movies, whatever reality we're in at the moment, he commits to that reality. And there's such a like sweetness and gentleness and sadness. Like I would, I would compare the tone to Ozu a little bit, where it's like there's you know all of these different characters and there um, there's like humor and there's there's like a light sadness. I would say. <laughs> so. Did you see one cut of the dead when we showed that? No, but I heard it was really good. There was good. a nice sort of temporal interplay like that as well. All of a sudden, you'd, you'd be sort of like brought out of what was happening because yeah. they were making a film within a film, but it was no cynicism with it at all. And it all kind of like becomes part of the It's same about thing. the love of making movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the first one that you mentioned there, uh, that's uh, Where is the Franchise? That's on Friday the 20th. And then the uh, the two follow up films, uh, part of the trilogy, and life goes on, uh, on Sunday the twenty second, and then Tuesday twenty fourth through the olive tree. So come to see all of that. Princess Two is cool. Princess Two is a gem, which is where I also saw Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems. I know it happened last month Ooh. by the time that you hear this, even though it's happening right now when, when I'm speaking. But its I think it is literally happening right now, isn't it? Yes, it yeah. starts yes. tomorrow. Uh, it starts tomorrow. I'm pretty sure I said exactly the same thing last time. Even if you don't like uh, the Safdie brothers or um, Adam Sandler or anything about uh, things that are visual, go watch it for the soundtrack. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel O'Patton's yeah. uh, return to the big screen after Good Time, which was from a couple mm. of years ago now. Actually, it was a thing we spoke about on, on the podcast last year. It, I think it's an amazing film. I think uh, Adam Sandler is unrecognizably and uncharacteristically good. It's anxiety <laughs> condensed on I, the screen. A Punch Drunk Love, I think, was a great film, but um, a, a bit of a uh, underrated, I'd say, See, as well. I watched an interesting video that said that he always... He's still playing kind of the same character in this movie, but the externality of the world is much more serious and threatening, yeah. which makes his performance seem better. But he's still kind of... And this person, this video wasn't criticizing him, but they were mm. just noting how like people... Praise all, you know, laud all this praise on him, but really it's very similar to a lot of other things he's done. He's kind of this screwball, like, can't do anything right, in a, in a annoying person. If it were directed <laughs> by a different uh, filmmaker and it had none of the kind of the serious elements that, that drive it forward in mm-hmm. terms of like, it's a very, it's written with anxiety. Oh, it's, it's, you're, by the end, your heart is just seized. It's like it's. Oh, it's a great. It's it's, it's really great. good for Feels that. Good. <laughs> I think the same thing of Punch Drunk Love, though. If you yeah. were to reach, you know, put him, put oh, that character sure. into yeah. into a different context, exactly. it would be a goof. That but, would, but that was you know. very much Paul Thomas Anderson's idea. I think was that he <laughs> was a fan of Adam Sandler, and he was like, "I'm going to take this character that he yeah. always plays and do something mm-hmm. a bit more interesting with it." But I really loved him in the Meyer with Meyer Owitz stories as that. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it's you know maybe I 
some people probably would think of it as like a lesser Noah Baumbach, but uh, he in, in particular is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Noah, think, uh, Noah Baumbach is a lesser Wits German. <laughs> yeah, so. <there> you go. <laughs> um, I think the Safties as well have got a particular talent uh, doing something which I like, which is making use of non-axes yeah. uh, and bringing actually exceptional performances out of them because. They, it's very hard to act like yourself which I think I was watching interviews with Kevin Garnett who's of course one of the central characters in uh, Uncut Gems professional uh, retired professional basketball player um, and notoriously basketball players aren't great at acting it's not very often that one of them will turn in a performance that is actually believable and he was told to just play himself that's not again that's not an easy thing to do you have to to baking a personification of yourself yeah. it's very strange and he does a really really good job of it he's very very natural and it's uh, it, the dialogue flows very very naturally between everybody and him and uh, it's really impressive well, two other things one is this plus good time plus if you've seen their first I don't know if it's their first their other film Heaven Knows What mm-hmm. um, they also make in the same way I don't you know in movies in the 70s made New York feel like this palpable mm-hmm. entity they have made New York in twenty in their twenty tens feel like a palpable entity and like it's more than just a city, it's this amalgamation of insanity. Actually, in a way. that's an interesting yeah. uh, in, uh, interpretation of, of what the film makes you feel. Because like we said, it was it's um, it's kind of riddled with anxiety all the way through and your yeah. heart is just racing for one reason or another. It's like being able to see the finish line but not being able to touch it yeah. constantly. That's what it's like. It's just, it's incredible. But a lot of that is to do with the sort of frenzied nature of the city and the way that he, they managed to sort of capture that everything is going at 100 miles an hour all the time and that character is exactly that he can't stop he yeah. can't he never it seems like he never sleeps yeah. um, and it's terrifying for that actually mm-hmm. um, but again if you were to make a comedy out of it it might be well it would be a bad Adam Sandler film it would. also it's all a movie about I think it's a love letter to basketball a bit which uh-huh. I'm a big fan of uh, that's on me also and Will hey you like basketball don't you I do like basketball I feel yeah. like to call this movie a love letter to basketball would be upsetting it's a love letter. <laughs> it's a love letter to bidding. Yes, it's a love letter. Which is not, not, not a thing we should be sending love letters to. <laughs> um, True. Yeah, he's a he's a degenerate gambler. But uh, my point <laughs> is that somebody I, it made me think that they the Safdie brothers were watching the 2012 Eastern <laughs> Conference semifinals and said, "Man, we need to make a movie about this." That's if, the if, feeling I get. If the, you, the, uh, yeah, no, you're right. If you are into sports and you have, uh, and not sorry, everybody is. Um, if you've gone through the emotional uh, trauma of watching a team that you love uh, lose or whatever it is that you do at sports events, you know, um, that's what it feels like. It feels you just have sweaty palms all the way through it. That's what it's like. It's not it's really unpleasant. I almost can't do it, but I'm addicted to it. So that's kind of uh, where the film sits, I think. Who remembers an American tale? It's about that little mouse called Fivel. Yeah. And I remember the sequel too, Fivel Goes West. Yeah. I don't remember anything about it. Doesn't he go missing? Yeah, so he washes overboard the ship or something. That's right, okay. yeah. So he, okay, so I have watched it in the last couple of years. Oh, okay. Um, and I, like I've been saying we should do, like what is interesting more to me about this movie and also, well, what did we screw? Oh, Secret of Nim, which we screened last month. Yeah 
is yeah. these, so these are Don Bluth films. Mm-hmm. And Don Bluth is an interesting like cultural phenomenon to me because I think he, he got a start in Disney. Like he made, <coughs> he was somehow involved in like the Puff the Magic Dragon movie or Peach Dragon. Peach Dragon. And uh, that's what it is. And um, <laughs> the of the concourse. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's like a Christmas movie by Disney that's about Jesus that I've seen those. Anyway, Don Bluth was a, had a hand in that. But obviously he like split off and started his own production company and basically went up against Disney. Like the, if you think like he, the, he made The Land Before Time. Um, All Dogs Go to Heaven. All Dogs Go to Heaven. Like uh, basically any major Anastasia. kids animation from the 80s and 90s that is not Disney is Don Bluth. And so I think it's interesting to kind of go back and watch. And like his movies are considered a bit darker than they're all what yeah. Disney great yeah. movies. Yeah. Well, Thumbelina is terrible. Is that one of his? Oh, yes. Uh. So bad. Okay, well, <laughs> the, the good ones are good. Yeah, yeah. They're, and I don't they're, know, like the ones you named. Like I like all of those. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, The Land Before Time is hmm. obviously a classic. But uh, no, yeah, Fievel goes missing in New York. So his family is an immigrant family. That I believe is fleeing Russia, uh, like the Ukraine under Russian. Yes. On a boat. On a yeah, boat, yeah, and then taking a boat across the ocean. So his family thinks that he's died at sea, but like he's Jason just Jason Bourne. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> then they think he's dead at sea, but he's really just like a few blocks away in New York. And uh, don't worry, they find each other in the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Some, goes on some adventures. There's cats. And rats. Yeah, there's like a bird, together. a French bird that lives in the Statue of Liberty or something. Oh, anyway, wow. you know, it's like very New York. I've yeah. definitely seen it, but that's a, lot, that's, a, that's a lot more than I remember about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, come and see that. It's at one o'clock on Saturday the 28th. It's a real family cinema. Right, they're back with a new series of films under the curatorial title of The Lobby Presents is Kevin Martin, who'll be certainly familiar face and voice to uh, Edmontonians, either as the co-founder of Deadfest or indeed the friendly proprietor of the Lobby DVD shop on White. There is, of course, the chance you've seen him in the very establishment we're in right now, which is the Black Dog, Kevin. Good Owen. to talk to you, man. Thanks for having me as we enjoy our fine pints on Oscar night. That's uh, correct. We're actually uh, yeah. so we're in the Black Dog enjoying, uh, enjoying Oscar night. And I'm killing it on my on picks so far. I you have are, six yeah, for seven at this moment. Did you put money on this? No, no. It's just friendly wagers. Just it's friendly all about wages, pride. All about pride. However, we're not here to talk about the Oscars. We're here to talk about your series. It's Lobby Presents. Yeah, so uh, basically, uh, I was uh, thinking about, I wanted to curate uh, a series uh, in between film festivals. Uh, we don't know what's going on with that yet, but we'll figure some shit out as we get closer to October. But yep. I figured, you know, the video store has been around for 15 years. I'm now the last video store in this city. So I had to come up with a theme, a theme I, I thought I felt very passionate and excited about. And as a child, I grew up in the video stores of the 80s, the mom and pop video stores before the evil invasion of Blockbuster, where they blocked a ten, us 10-year-old kids from watching these cool movies. I wanted to display and present the films that got me personally into genre movies and that uh, hopefully are getting even the younger generation now that come to my shop into these very same movies that I was into because uh, I, I'm, I'm very progressive and liberal when it comes to allowing the underagers renting certain movies that I grew up with, too. Uh, w- within certain limits, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I'm not going to rent a 10-year-old kid Serbian film. F- that noise. I mean, to be fair, you shouldn't be renting adults Serbian film. I, I just, I'm not a big censorship guy. What can I say? No. But when it comes to this in particular series and working with the Metro Cinema for so long, 
Um, the idea of seeing some of these classics back on the big screen and sharing these exciting cinemat cinematic moments with uh, hopefully uh, one or two hundred genre fans is a thrill I, I couldn't I couldn't pass up on. So I was rattling my brain. Well, what'll be the first movie? You know, because I want to do a series throughout the year. And uh, it, it dawned on me, well, what was the movie that got me into, like, completely falling in love with, with genre films? And uh, there's no question, it was uh, 1985's cult classic, The Return of the Living Dead, which, ironically, has celebrated its 35th anniversary this year. So the timing couldn't be any better. As you say, absolute classic, directed by Dan O'Bannon, also written by Dan O'Bannon as well. Of course. You know, the original director uh, that was supposed to be attached to it was Toby Hooper, but then that yeah. uh, kind of fell apart. Now, Dan O'Bannon, as most people might know, it was the writer of, of Alien. And... Um, and uh, the fact that O'Bannon stepped in and uh, did what originally was supposed to be sort of connected to the George Romero movies uh, of Night, Dawn, and Day. And uh, the script took it in a totally wildly different direction. And, uh, you know, rest in peace, Dan O'Bannon. But we always heard that O'Bannon was not the most pleasant guy to work with. He was a, he was a pretty hard director to be with on set. But if you think about it, some of the best movies out there, especially in the 70s and 80s, some of our favorite ones, the directors were not pleasant people to work with on set. Looking at you, Billy Freakin. When I saw that movie, I was 10 years old. And I wasn't quite sure if I liked horror movies or not yet, because they were a little bit too scary for me. Return of the Dead did something that, that not a lot of genre movies at that time were able to do, and do it in such a perfectly blended way, was combining the elements of horror, but not too scary, and comedy. But not force comedy, and it, it works so well. And of course, there's the element of coolness factor of that movie, because going with the punk rockers as our, our protagonists, the guys we're rooting for to survive, uh, brought another uh, cool element to it. Uh, also, I mean, if you look at the soundtrack of the film, that movie might have got me into punk rock music at an early age too, because uh, it was unheard of at the time. It's like, well, let's just hire a bunch of, you know, up-and-coming punk bands or underground punk bands, and we'll get to do the soundtrack. So you're watching the, this crazy zombie attacking the humanity of the world movie, but you're hearing some of the sweetest tunes. And to be totally honest, you know, as a 10-year-old boy that's still trying to figure out this whole women and, and, and men, uh, you know, attraction, when I laid my eyes on Linnea Quigley in that movie <laughs> as the character Trash, and the way they had her makeup and, and doing the very, very iconic to horror fans, a striptease dance in the graveyard. I mean, that was it. I think at 10 years old, I was like, I think I like horror movies. I think I like punk music. And I think I want to fall in love with a punk rock girl. You know, it was, it was a trifecta. But more importantly, and obviously we in years, years ago, we screamed for Dead as part of Dead Fest. It is such a fun gathering of, of fans. It's a party movie. I, I know that term is used a lot. Uh, with Rocky Horror and stuff like that, but when it comes to horror movie fans, Return of the Living Dead is easily in the top three party movies to go see with your friends at a theater. And uh, I hope uh, maybe people have never seen it that want to come uh, check it out and uh, come with a group of buddies. And um, you know, it, it's going to be a fun time. It, it's going to be a great movie, and hopefully, I can teach some of the newcomers that, that are sitting in the seats on their asses while I'm being awkward and uncomfortable on stage a few factoids about why this movie is so important to video store culture, especially if you grew up in the 1980s. Also worth checking out, since we're talking about Dan O'Bannon, uh, go and check out Dark Star because he's somebody who's always been able to take uh, at a kind of existing format and just twist it. It's funny you mentioned Dark Star because, as, as we both know, last year the Metro Cinema showed Memory, the origin of uh, yes. the origin of Alien. Yeah. 
And uh, I didn't know, unfortunately, what a, what a unfortunate falling out O'Bannon and John Carpenter had after making that movie. And I don't believe they ever spoke again up until O'Bannon's passing. It's and a very, sad, very underrated film. Uh, if you've not seen Dark Star, go and see it. O'Bannon, you know, like they always say, he wasn't the easiest guy to work with, but he got the job done. And, and he always he was passionate about his work. He'll always probably be best remembered as the writer of Alien, which deservingly so. I mean, Alien is a masterpiece. But if there's a number two on there, Dan O'Bannon with Return of the Dead did, did something incredible under the most extreme low-budget... I mean, uh, uh, one director gets fired, O'Bannon steps in, they had to fire the special effects guy because his effects were just garbage. He steps in. I mean, the production was kind of a hell. It's something about always the most frustrating and hellacious working conditions with some of these movies somehow, in the end, give us the best and most satisfying product at the end. Absolutely. And, and, and Return of the Dead, I have lost count of many times I've seen it. I'm honest, no word of a lie, easily over 200 times in my lifetime. I got my parents to get me the... Uh, the VHS tape to buy it previously used back in 86 and I'll tell you you young kids out there to buy a VHS tape in 1986 was no easy feat you had to beg the owner of the video store and it was costing you about 80 bucks now that is $80 1986 money that's not $80 like 2020 money so Try spending $400 on a VHS tape today similarly and, and as a child and convincing your parents to do it for you This all goes back to video store culture. And like, I know to the, the younger people out there, they, they only know about video stores from their maybe older brothers, sisters, or parents. But obviously me still having a video store, I try to keep it going in our city. And I just want to present, these were the movies that if you went to a video store in the 80s as a kid, and you, all you had to judge by was the cover of the movies, yep. they just gravitated toward, toward you. That's, that's, how, you uh, that's how I ended up renting Bad Taste. What I love about this series is that it is an extension of the video store. It is uh, It kind of like falls under the umbrella of video store culture, and I think that, that there's a really nice thing for you to have that, that extra kind of platform. And coming to see these films on the big screen also is uh, obviously always a, a, a massive pleasure and a privilege. Just chuck out a couple of the titles that you really like you know kind of your return of the living deads well what's up there with you obviously like i, I don't be, being a co-founder of dead fest for the last 12 years you know it's so easy for me to say okay there's a lot of cool horror movies in the 80s but it almost feels too much like dead fest but in the end i still can't help myself because the other series of uh, films in the 80s that made me who i am Friday 13th was one of the biggest ones in my life and i still cherish it i was a jason guy not a freddy guy i was more of a jason guy much respect to Freddy Krueger. And the first one I ever saw, and I saw these out of order, of course, on beta tape, was part four of the final chapter. And that movie terrified me uh, as a child. If I considered this would be the next one, and people are like, Kev, it's part four. What about the first? I'm like, listen, here's the beauty. When I was a kid and I saw part four first, that was fine because they literally sum up the first three movies in the first five minutes of that movie. They literally show you everything that happened, yeah. and boom. And now, and and, and not, I wouldn't just show it for selfish, well, that was the first one I saw, so I want you guys to see it. No, it is hands down, in my opinion, one of the top three perfected 80s slasher movies that gives you everything you want, including a Crispin Glover, including a Corey Feldman, including Tom Savini in the special effects, 
including uh, Joseph Zito, who directed the movie, who was also one of the best B-movie directors of the 80s, started off with movies like The Prowler, but after that, people forget he jumped into the action genre by doing Invasion USA with Chuck Norris and Red Scorpion with Dolph Lundgren. Joe Zito, totally underrated guy as well. And if you're just a fan of like, I just want to see some cool kills, sexy teenagers from the 80s, a lot of nudity too, God bless. And uh, you know, like young Corey Feldman, right before he did The Goonies, uh, you know, whipped Jason's ass as a 10 year old and Crispin Glover doing one of the greatest cinematic dances of all time on screen. Then part four of the final chapter is the ultimate of excitement and just once again, like we're telling me dead, a very fun quotable movie in a theater. And uh, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that's what, I, what I'm thinking for May, but you know, camping season starts in May, so eh, you never know. Topical. Uh, so there you go. I think you get a, a sense of the flavor of what we're going for here. It is part the uh, the lobby DVD store on white. That's part of why this thing exists, but it's also part you. But Kevin, thank you so much for talking to me. Owen, a pleasure. Let's keep enjoying this award show, even though none of the nominees that we want to see win are probably going to win. But I think just before we started talking, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had won the uh, best. Oh, ris- somebody oh, else oh, just oh, won. Hello. I think this is Once Upon Oh, no, no. You know what? This doesn't work on radio. Kevin. Oh, I picked that one, too. I'm not even f***ing joking. <laughs> best short documentary. There it is. Learning to skateboard in a war zone. Kevin's on fire today. I'm on fire tonight. I'm on fucking sorry, guys. I know this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Absolutely not. No. But uh, it's a pride thing, everybody. Kevin, thank you so much. Oh, and you're the man. Thank you. Let's have a shot. Now, Nick. Yes. I know that you had uh, some hand in the Festival of Inappropriation. Uh, somewhat. Very. I would say a very small role. I was kind of an small assistant. Hand curator to one of the main curators, uh, Jamie Barron, who is a professor of film studies. Who I've also interviewed for this. Yes, at the U of A. Um, And the Festival of Inappropriation is a short film festival where all the films use appropriated materials. And what's cool about it or what's interesting about it is that the medium of appropriation can be whatever you choose and the, the... um, material from which you take can be anything. Um, and so it produces a lot of really interesting digital and celluloid results. You you never really know what you're going to expect. Um, there's always something interesting to see and uh, it should be it should be worth a watch. For I remember last year there was an amazing one about uh, shower scenes. And it was uh, the lots bathtub of scene one? the bathtub yeah, scene. Yeah. And it was all, all these clips stitched together. And they slowly yeah. build the tension. So it starts off with people running baths, and then increasingly things just mm-hmm. start happening that make it all seem more and more severe yeah. as the as the scenes get more and more dramatic. Really, really incredible it's, stuff. And then that amazing music video from um, the Avalanches as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to describe without seeing a lot of these films. Yeah, but they some of them are really incredible. And again, the the variety you get in that program I think it's an hour and a half on a mm-hmm. Sunday afternoon you're going to see all kinds of stuff and yeah it's a really exceptional use of of, uh, of found footage and things that you can do with yeah. it and collage uh, yeah. creative collage culture and things like that it's absolutely fantastic mm-hmm. loads of really really interesting stuff to see there and uh, you'll definitely see something that might actually just blow your mind um, because it's interesting what people are doing with uh, the kind of if I like what I like about it is that it kind of addresses the sort of ephemeral nature of the things we yeah. put online, the, the content it that we, we have a very throwaway culture with that. That it, once you put it online, it sort of disappears into the ether, um, but it's being dragged back up and and, and brought onto the big screen. That's really fantastic. So come and see that at three thirty, and that's on the fifteenth. 
Apart from that, there's uh, what else have we missed here? I can talk Sorry, about Mildred Pierce, which is oh, the... Oh, Mildred Pierce, that's right at the end of the month. Yeah, it's the Sunday Classic screening. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a 1945 film with Joan Crawford. It is directed by Michael Curtiz, best known for Casablanca. And it's based on a James and Kane novel who wrote a lot of uh, hard-boiled fiction. But it's kind of considered more... It's like a kind of a a cross between like a woman's melodrama and a film noir but I what I find really interesting about it is that the the title character Mildred Pierce is a single mother and I think the film if you watch the trailer it's like the film's really trying to play on almost the salacious nature in the time of just being a like a woman who has had children who is single and who's dating again but the movie's really more interesting than that she's an entrepreneur like she starts her own restaurant chain and so in some ways I think she's a really uh, strong character for films of that time but also what's really the movie's really about is her relationship with her daughter who is this probably a sociopath like this completely selfish teenager who is constantly embarrassed by their status and is and the this mother is always trying to win her approval and so that's kind of like what drives the movie and uh like i said it's noir so things end badly i don't know it's like it's a really interesting like I just you don't see movies like that very often apparently the Todd Haynes adaptation of Mildred Pierce that was made for HBO with Kate Winslet is is much more um, true to the novel but I think they're both really great in in different ways yeah I, well, I want to see Dark shows. Waters Dark Waters that's the new Todd Haynes yeah that's right when is that like new new yeah, yeah it came out, like a political thriller right month, yeah Mark Ruffalo plays like a lawyer. Uh, he's a he's a he's a lawyer for like a big oil or chemical company. Like tr- is it a true story? Yeah, or? it's a yeah. true story. I forget the name. Uh, Dupont. Okay. Uh. Dupont, and like he finds out that they're dumping or they're like <laughs> flooding the river in his hometown in Virginia with this chemical that's like making people really sick. Mm-hmm. And so then he tries to to sue them. And oh. He knows all their secrets because he's worked for them for so long. It sort of I don't, link, I, links back to safe in really a way heard as well. It, yeah, yeah. it looked it looked like you watch the trailer and you'd be like, "This is a generic kind of like political courtroom drama, like a little bit of like there's something interesting, but you doubt that they actually go all the way with it." And then you see Todd Haynes did it, and you're like, <laughs> I, "I think that's uh, that does just about." cover everything but now there's a few films that we've uh, obviously missed out booksellers a uh, documentary about the uh, I suppose now subculture of uh, book selling oh we've got Wonder the French Boy. Film Festival that's back again Extraordinary uh, Will Forte where's he from Nick he's from McGruber McGruber that's exactly <laughs> where he's from fantastic alright there's loads more go to metrocinema.org for more details about all of that and you know not to get you too excited but on April 1st there's a chance he might be showing cats that can't be right so April Fools oh right uh, thank you very much for coming everybody uh, thank you William thanks Owen thank you Nick thank you thank you Heather thank you thank you Talisha thank you I've been Owen. I guess I should say I, you're oh. you've been <laughs> <laughs> No longer Owen. What were you going to say there, Nick? You're welcome. You oh. said thank you, so I should say you're welcome. Oh, it, that's just, uh, it was implied. <laughs> <laughs> you should just stop thanking us. Just be like, okay, get out. I can't. I know, I can't do that. That's rude. Uh, but uh, come to Metro. We'll see you in the lobby. Thank you for listening. Thank you.